He's Don't gonna, say that. All <laughs> kinds of things. You're going to be blown away by Jared. So I'll set you up enough? Let's try that again. All right, let's try that again. Jared is really going to stink today. And so <laughs> any you. expectations Very you have are, should be right here. That's all right. right. All right. Very much. We're Thank so glad that he's that. with you. Give him a hand for being here. Okay. All right. Hi. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate uh, you guys being so welcoming. Everyone I've talked to today has been super excited about uh, what is happening in this community. I'm so grateful that God is moving um, so mightily through this church. I've been at Mariners now for eight years, almost eight years on staff, and almost 11 years uh, total. And so I've been around the church, and I've seen a lot of really great things happening. And I honestly say this. I'm not just, I'm not just saying this to like, make you feel good. I'm genuinely excited about what God's doing in Huntington Beach. There is so much going on in your community. And I believe wholeheartedly in Caleb as a leader and Jairus as a leader and the team that has been built around this place. Last night, I attended the Irvine service and I heard Caleb um, give a message. But more than a message, he shared his heart for this city. And he was talking you guys up so big. So you should be really grateful that you have a leader like that that is so excited about you guys. Um, I loved hearing his heart. He got emotional. I mean, that's just like, you don't expect that. And then all of a sudden, he's emotional about you guys. And so really grateful that you guys have a great leader uh, in Caleb. Now, you also don't realize this, but you have a legend in your midst, okay? There is a guy here who um, sits among you every week, and you may or may not have met him, but he's on the tech team here. His name is Jonathan. Okay, Jonathan, can you just can you say hi back there? There he is. Okay, great. Now, Jonathan... Jonathan is, is more than a tech guy. He is like an incredible servant as well. For the past two years, he has come with us on junior high summer camp, which that takes an extreme amount of passion and uh, willingness to follow Jesus into the darkest depths of the universe. And so Jonathan came with us uh, last year. And this year as well, but last year something amazing happened. On our way out, we started telling the story, the legend, if you will, of, of Johnny Mullins. And so we started telling these students this little campfire story that, uh, about this guy, Johnny, who died in a fire. It's going to get really embarrassing here. He died in a fire and his head fell off. Uh, we don't know why, it just did. And in, and in place of his head, he put an apple uh, because it's up, we go to a camp by Julian, and there's all these apple orchards everywhere. And so we're telling these kids these stories, and we're just like, ooh, Johnny Mullins, he's still around. He's going to get you. And so we just thought, oh, it'd be kind of funny to tell this story. And then we, like, we took a couple apples from the dining hall, and we would like, bit into the apples those letters J-M, like Johnny Mullins, and we'd leave them on some kids' pillows. I mean, just harmless stuff. And... <laughs> And so this legend starts forming about Johnny Mullins, and all these kids are like, oh, Johnny's going to get us, like kind of faking it. But you know a couple of them are a little bit scared. And so the last night of camp, we, uh, like, like 12-year-old girls, were like in the bushes hiding, like, what are we going to do? Let's prank the kids. And so here we are as a junior high staff. We have a routine that every camp we sort of, on the last night, we prank some of our cabins. And where we go is incredible because all the dorms overlook a giant field. There's this huge uh, field out there, and all the dorms, their windows open up and look at the field. And so we had planted this story about Johnny Mullins who sits on a rocking chair and is like out to get kids or something like that. We don't know. We're really great youth pastors. And so we, um, we then put one of our guys out on the field, and we start going around, and we're like on the roofs of cabins, and we're like tapping on the tiles and like grabbing sticks and tapping windows and stuff. No one scared. We're like, come on, come on. So finally, we find the, 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 uh, the, the people we knew would be scared. The seventh grade girls who 
had no leader in their cabin that night, which was so perfect. Uh, so, so perfect. And so they had a, a leader that was watching both cabins. Um, and so uh, we did not tell their leader because we wanted this to be so sincere, which I'm a great youth pastor. And so then we start telling these girls, and then we see the best thing that we could hope for. A flashlight turns on, and they look out in the field, and it's like a movie where you watch this like beam of light going all over the field, and there is Johnny Mullins, right, sitting on a rocking chair. And this flashlight's missing him, just going all over the place. And we're just like biting our nails, like, please, please hit Johnny Mullins, and finally, bing, it hits him, and you hear the whole cabin scream. It was just perfect, and we're like, the legend lives, and so the, as soon as they scream, the flashlight, you see it like drop, right? It wasn't like, it wasn't like a turn off. It was like, ah, like that kind of a thing, and then the, they go, the guy on the field comes running back to us, so then the, like right as he gets out of the line of sight, the flashlight comes back, and they get the chair, and there's no one in it. Oh, it was the best. It was the best, and so then they start freaking out again. They're screaming. The leader comes out and is banging on the door. They had locked the door. Open the door, open the door, and I'm like freaking out now because she's a mom in our ministry, and I'm like, this mom's going to be really angry at me because I'm a terrible person, so I run up. I'm like, I'm like, hey, Chrissy, Chrissy. I'm like, it's okay. It's me. It's a word. We are doing this, and she just starts slapping and hitting me. You're the worst, uh. and then so we, anyway, she, we calmed down later. I walk into the girls' cabin, I'm like, what's going on? I'm like in my pajamas, like, oh, you woke me up, you know, doing all this. And so then we, uh, we basically let the legend of Johnny Mullins live. And it was really exciting because you have your very own Johnny Mullins right here. And he is a legend in our parts. We love that guy. We're grateful and we're bummed that you have him because we wish we could just keep that legend going all the time. Now, we are here to dive into a, uh, a passage. I don't have like a cool segue, nothing like that. I'm not that slick or anything. But we're here to, to open up God's word. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 3 this morning. Um, this is probably, if you have never been to church, there's probably like three stories in the Bible that you have heard of. This, bar, by chance, is one of them. It is the story of Moses and the burning bush. Again, chances are, uh, if you've never read a page in the Bible, you've maybe seen like a felt board of this story before. Uh, you've probably heard it before. So uh, I want you to try to see it with new eyes this morning. I want you to hear it with new ears. So go with me together uh, in, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within the bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire, and it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over there and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. So he's doing his business, right? Moses is walking around. You know Moses. You've heard about him before. You've seen the movies. You've seen the cartoon. You know Moses. And he's walking around in this familiar area, a place that belonged to his father-in-law, and he's tending sheep. He is a shepherd walking around in the wilderness, and he sees a sight that stops him in his tracks. He sees a bush that has caught on fire. Now, many scholars would say that a bush catching on fire in the wilderness, surprisingly enough, is not that uncommon. That it is so hot in the desert in the middle of the summer that a bush might spontaneously combust at any moment, which is really exciting because I lived in Vegas for a long time, and it got very hot, and I always wished that a tumbleweed would like be rolling down the street on fire. Never saw it, but for whatever reason, scholars say that this might not be that uncommon. For the life of a shepherd, 
there's a chance that they would have seen a, a, a bush, a shrub on fire before. Not that, like it wouldn't happen every, you know, every Tuesday, hey, there goes that bush on fire. But in their lifetime, there's a good chance they would have seen this before. So Moses is in a very familiar place. He's walking around in the wilderness doing his job, and he sees a bush, and he does what every good shepherd would do. When a bush catches on fire, you pull up a chaise lounge, you get some lemonade, and you watch it burn, right? Why else would, what else is there to do? You're just tending the sheep, they're eating, you're going to watch that thing burn, right? We all like watching things on fire. It's exciting. It's, it brings energy to us, so he's just going to sit there. But something was different. He watched it long enough to notice that that bush was different than perhaps the other bushes that he's seen on fire before. And upon careful inspection, he sees that the thing that's different about this bush is that it is on fire, and yet it is not being consumed. When I was in junior high, my my family and I lived up in a small rural area of Washington State where the only thing that's good up there is that fireworks on 4th of July are unbelievable. Because there's all these like, like Indian reservations around that sell the good stuff, you know? And so down here, you know, we get these like little like piccolo peats and like, wee, we scream, and that's it, you know what I mean? These little like ground flowers. And to make it more interesting, we put them on ladders so they get a little higher, you know what I'm talking about? No, not up in Washington. In Washington, you can buy cannons. You can buy like full on mortars and you drop the little like cannonball in there and you light it and you run, it's like, thump. And it's super exciting, and it's all awesome and stuff. And so this uh, one year when I was in junior high, we bought um, all kinds of fireworks. And I remember that like, the grand finale was this rocket. It was shaped like a rocket. In my mind, as a 13-year-old, I'm like, it's going to the moon, and it will be unbelievable, right? And so the rocket goes... We light it on fire as the grand finale, and it shoots up about 15 feet and then makes like a right-hand turn and just like buzzes past us, Top Gun moment, past the tower, and right into a tree in the middle of this forest. And we're looking at this rocket. First thought was awesome. And second thought was, we're going to burn down the state of Washington. And so we see this rocket stuck in a tree, fire shooting out the back of it, and I'm running to the tree just going, please don't be on fire, please don't be on fire, please don't be on fire, because if that tree catches on fire, we're going to die. I think they actually kill people for burning trees in Washington because they're all environmentalists and drive Priuses and stuff. And so I'm looking at this tree going, please do not, my mom drives a Prius, she's right here, please do not, side note, just so you guys know, uh, <laughs> that was the side note, that my mom drives a Prius and she's here. Um, and I'm, I'm like going, please do not catch on fire a tree. Now Moses is looking at this bush and going, What? That's a bush not on fire. This is something different. Now, most bushes would eventually burn out, right? It takes a dead tree. Fire eats up that tree. It turns into ash. Once it runs out of fuel, the fire stops. Basic science, right? Something was different about this day. Look at what it says in verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, circle, if you would, in your outlines, your Bible, the Lord saw, just the word saw. The Lord saw that he had gone over to look, Uh, When he did, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. This is an unbelievably profound moment in Moses' life. God speaks to him from within a, a consuming fire. And he says his name. Can you imagine the creator of the universe saying your name? 
To respond to that would be unbelievable. So this place, this land that he has been a part of, this common place, all of a sudden became very uncommon. This space that was once just meant nothing to him, all of a sudden became a very sacred place. And God's response to him, when he looks at him and says, take off your shoes as a sign of reference. Take off your shoes because you are now standing on holy ground. This is a huge moment in this story because now God, what I love in this, I'm I'm really into story. I love the idea of story. God begins by saying, I am the God of your father, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am that God, the God that has been with your people, your ancestors since the beginning. It is me. This is who I am. It is an unbelievable picture of God saying, I know you and you know me, even though we've never actually spoken face to face or in this place. Look at what it says. Uh, Look at what God says to him in verse 7. It says, The Lord said, I have indeed seen, circle seen, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up, out, of that land and into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the uh, Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of Israel has reached me, and I have seen, circle seen again, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. From within this bush, God looks at Moses And he says, I see you and I see my people. I see the pain and the suffering. I can hear their cries. I see the oppression that they face. I see everything that is happening in my creation. God makes a profound move here where he looks at him and he says, this is my people and I am not okay with what's happening. Exodus chapter 3 is not a cute story about a guy wandering through the wilderness and and then encountering God. Exodus chapter 3 is about this uncontrollable, this untamed, limitless God who expressed himself, who sent himself down to earth as a burning bush in order to have a conversation with one man. And that conversation was not about what to do next week. That conversation was not about the weather. That conversation was about God's heart for his people. It was God saying, I see you, and I am not okay with what is happening. In all honesty, God saw the pain and the broken and the hurt of his people. He saw what was happening to them, the affliction that they felt, the oppression that they faced. He saw that, and the only symbol that God could have used in response to that is fire. Fire is the only way that God could have shown up in that moment. Let me show you something. Um, Fire, as we all know, is a very basic necessity, right? If you were like lost in the wilderness, if you ever watched um, Man vs. Wild, Bear Grylls or whatever, fire and water and shelter are like the three most important things. Fire is a basic necessity to life. Most scholars would say that, that, that fire is actually a servant of humanity. And the reason they say that is because we use it to cook food, we use it to stay warm. We use it to, be, uh, to light up the darkness in our homes or in the area that we're at. Fire serves us so that we can live. 
This is an unbelievable picture that God chooses this. Look at what happens in the Old Testament. So I'm just going to rifle through a few things. Exodus 19, God descends on Mount Sinai, which is the same place that Moses is here. Exodus 19, he descends on it like fire from the heavens. Ezekiel, when he tries to describe the indescribable God, he doesn't know what else to say, but he just keeps repeating, it's like he's on fire. It's like a vision of fire. Ezekiel trying to describe God. In Psalm 29, the Lord's voice flashes forth like flames. As we know in Exodus chapter 12, a little bit after this story, a, a pillar of fire leads the nation of Israel throughout the wilderness. In Hosea uh, chapter 8, God's fire burns for wrath, for, for um, his, his wrath burns like fire is what I mean to say. And then all throughout Ezekiel, he uses this metaphor of fire to talk about the fire of my wrath. It's this common expression of who God is. As we jump into the New Testament, in the beginning of Acts, we get a story of God descending on his people like tongues of fire in the middle of the upper room, just as Jesus had left them. In 1 Peter 4, fire is used as a picture of testing, as a picture of, of proving. And as we look into uh, further on to the New Testament, in parts of Matthew chapter 3, parts of Hebrews chapter 10, we get a very um, end-of-days picture, a judgment picture of what fire is. Fire is this symbol that in the Bible, God is in the business of destroying evil and purifying his people. That God is in the business of destroying the evil and the wickedness of the world and purifying his people. So it makes sense that God would actually use fire throughout the whole Bible, right? Think about the sun, a giant ball of fire in the sky, right? It makes sense that all of life is dependent on the sun. And the same thing for us, all of our spiritual life is dependent on God. Same thing that fire lights up the darkness. The light of Jesus destroys evil and wickedness in our world. It's a picture of him overcoming evil. Fire is also this, this flickering ever-changing thing that we can't quite hold in our hand in order to examine it, if you care about your hand at least. Uh, you can't hold it close enough to examine it. Same thing with God, right? He is just beyond our grasp always. He is always just a little difficult to explain, not close enough to where you can examine him and grasp him and fully understand him. You and I will never fully understand God on earth. So it makes sense that God would use fire to destroy evil and to purify his people. Because look at what it says in verse three, ten, or, uh, chapter 3, verse 10 through 11. God says to him, so now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Who am I, right? God says, I'm going to use you to go back to the king. Now, we know Moses. He's a pillar of our faith. We've all heard this story. He's an incredible guy. We assume he has great character. But if you went backwards one chapter and you got a context of who, Pharaoh, or, um, of who Moses is, you would realize that he is the most ordinary, unlikely choice for this story. Um, Moses was born during the time where Pharaoh had released a decree to kill every um, young Hebrew Jewish boy of the time uh, trying to annihilate some of this, this, this nation. So the decree was out to kill all these boys. Moses is born. His mother hid him for three months, doing her best to protect her son. When, it, when the oppression became too strong, she put him in a basket, floated him down the river, and it just so happens that Pharaoh's own daughter was bathing in that river. 
a tenant of hers sees Moses, captures, or, um, rescues this baby, captures, rescues this baby. And, and, and when Pharaoh's daughter sees this baby that has been uh, sent down this river to die, she has compassion on this child and raises her as his own. So now Moses is growing up in royalty. A boy that was supposed to be killed is now growing, in the, growing up in the royal family. A stranger in his own land, a stranger in, the, in, in um, this royal family, in this kingdom. He's a foreigner in this place, and yet he grows up there. He lives in this place, and as he gets older, he knows that he is Jewish, and he knows that the rest of these Egyptian people are oppressing his people. He's about his business in the marketplace one day, and he sees an Egyptian soldier who is um, beating up a Hebrew man, one of his own people. And he is ignited with this sense of injustice as he looks at his own person. And what does he do? He lashes out at this Egyptian man, and he kills him. On behalf of the uh, nation of Israel, right, he kills this person as an injustice. And now he is forced to flee. Pharaoh doesn't want him to live anymore, obviously. And so he is forced to flee, forced to leave a life of wandering throughout the desert on his own. And so he's gone, and he is out by himself. Look at what it says at the very end of chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. It says, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God saw them again. When God heard the cries of his people, he remembered his history and his covenant with his people. All of a sudden, God's heart was alive for them. God says, this is not okay. So he looked on to the people of Israel. When God shows up to Moses, what does he say? I am the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am that same person, the person that you're hurting for. And so Moses now is a picture of somebody that is broken, has a past, is somebody that should not be used by God, and yet God's heart for the world is so much stronger than Moses' shortcomings. God's heart for his people is bigger than anything wrong that Moses could have done. And so he looks at him and he says, go, I'm going to send you back to Pharaoh. I'm going to send you back to that place where you were once a foreigner and you are not going to just live among them. You are going to be my help in rescuing them. What does God say in there? He, he said that um, uh, in verses 7 through 9 somewhere, you don't have to put it up on the screen, but he basically says, I am going, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. God is in the business of rescuing the lost and the broken of the world. He is not okay with what is happening among us. This is God's heart for the world. God is on a reconciliation and redemption mission. The brokenness of his creation is not okay with him. The pain that he sees in the world, he cannot just let that go. And he is willing to use anybody to get his mission moving forward. And he's looking for people to partner with him in that mission. I know a guy who was um, in uh, the military. He was a Marine Special Forces guy. And when he was over on a tour in Afghanistan, he saw the effects of, of what extreme poverty and hunger would do to families that were living in Afghanistan at the time. He saw men, fathers of families, would give their kids over to the Taliban in order to put food on their own table literally giving in to the enemy so that they could at least feed their family. 
Now, when this guy got out of the military, he came back home, got a business degree, and said, I am not okay with what I see in the world. I am not okay with what extreme hunger and poverty will do to people just to survive. So in reaction to that, he goes and starts an organization to raise up community leaders and to give them the tools necessary so that they can raise themselves above poverty, raise themselves above um, the, the hunger And so that they can put food on their tables. He saw a need and he was not okay with it. Now imagine God. God as he looks upon us and he sees pain and he sees brokenness. And he sees the the hurt and the suffering and the oppression of his people. And he hears our cries. God, your father, is not okay with it. He is not okay with the pain amongst his people. You see... This, this flame that was inside Moses was not Moses' flame. It's not something that he started. It's not something that was a passion inside of him to save Israel, to go and to lead them out of Egypt. That wasn't his flame. Instead, he had a true encounter with the God of the universe who showed up before him and said, I see my people. I hear my people. Moses has that same passion. Moses was upset about the oppression of his own people, and he happened to kill an Egyptian man. Moses meets the heart of God, and his soul is ignited. He is then the chosen person to go into Pharaoh and to lead people in a miraculous story, to lead a million people out of captivity and to wander through the wilderness, trusting in God alone. That fire of God spread into Moses' heart, and that is the revolution that started that you and I are still a part of today. The New Testament is is the story of, of Jesus and his apostles and the things that they do. Every time I read through the Gospels, I am amazed that Jesus is not here on his own account. Jesus is here to be about his father's business. What is his business? It is healing the blind. It is caring for the hungry, feeding the hungry, right? It is healing the, the, uh, the, the lame, the people that cannot walk. It is to show and to spread forgiveness and to give salvation to those who need it the most. Jesus was all about his father's business, caring for that outcast, the foreigner, the broken, the person that is in pain, the people that you live amongst every single day. Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit. As he's getting ready to leave, he gives one final gift to his disciples. He says, I'm going to give you something that is so greater than I. I will give you a comforter, one who will be with you. And we know that that is his own spirit. Acts chapter two, I mentioned it earlier, tongues of fire come down and the Holy Spirit is given to the church so that you and I could be a part of that same flame that has been burning for thousands and thousands of years. It is not a coincidence to me. Then when we get to Matthew chapter five, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been around a whole lot of people and he retreats up to a mountainside with his disciples and some other people happen to follow. And he's looking at his disciples, the ones that he loves dearly. And he says these words in Matthew chapter five. I'll go there. He says this, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. You are the light of the world. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You are the light of the world. When we hear that, we think of a flashlight. We think of a light bulb. We think of a 
beautiful stage light or a phosphorescent hum, right? We think of light in that way. This audience would have thought of fire. They would have thought of a torch. The only thing of light that they actually had was fire. And they are now a living expression of the God of the universe whose heart burns for his people. And he says, you are that light. You are a light in the darkness, the light that is here to destroy evil and to purify his people. That is you. Look at the second half, if you could put that back up for me, uh, of, this, of this passage, the last part, verse 16. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds, and glorify your Father in heaven. God saw his people. Moses saw a bush. God heard the cries of his people and did not, uh, was not okay with it. And now you and I have been ignited by that same fire so that the world may see us. And when they see us, they will know that God loves them. When they see how you and I love each other, when they see how you and I care for this community, when they see how you and I care for the broken of Huntington Beach, they will know that God loves them because that is God's heart for the world, that God has given you and I his Holy Spirit, that God has said, I have hand-selected you to be exactly where you are. Think about that, that God hand-selected you to be in your family, to be in your place of work or business, to be in that social scene that you are, whatever it is that you do in your spare time, your free time. That God has said you are a light to the world in every sector that you live. And that you are a physical representation of God's heart for the lost and the broken of this world. That is who you and I are. There is nothing else that we can do but to say this is what God's desire is for us. So let me ask you, what dreams do you have? What are those dreams that you've had? Maybe you've had them since you were young. Maybe it's a new, fresh dream that you've been given. What are these dreams that you have? These things that you want to do or accomplish in life, the person that you want to be, right? For most of us, not surprisingly, uh, it has something to do with the American dream, probably. We all want to live a wonderful, happy, satisfied life with you know, the big house and the white picket fence, 2.5 children, gold retriever, right? We all want these things. We all know the American dream because we've been spoon-fed it our entire lives, right? What are those obstacles that are getting in the way of that dream? Sometimes I think those are actually really good obstacles that are stopping us from living the life that everyone else is living from living the life that everyone else in Huntington Beach is chasing after, you don't have to chase after that. Because we have been included into a family where God, the author of life, is writing you a better story. He is breaking into your dreams and saying, your dreams and my dreams can be the same. That the dream that God has for this world, the dream that God has for this community in this city, it can be your dream as well. I, get, I, would, I would imagine that there's obstacles, the things that get in the way. When I was um, out of college, you know, a young guy working at, at this church, actually, um, I, had a, I had a problem with wanting recognition. When things would go really well, I would always be like, that points back to me. You realize that, right? Like, I did that. I mean, I'm pretty, pretty rad, you know? And so I would do this where I would want people to see that. Like, that's a good guy up front. He's funny. He's, you know, he's whatever. And I would really need that recognition. It comes back all the way into high school. I was like that before I was a Christian. Um, all these kind of things. And that recognition, that significance piece for me was a huge issue that I had to overcome. It was something that I had to let go. Because for me, and it's it's. It's so borderline cheesy, it's dangerous. For me, I have to believe. 
I have to believe that the things that I do, that if God sees those things, that that's enough recognition for myself. And I know that that's so cheesy. Oh, God just, God sees me and it's all great. I actually believe that. That if God, if I can embrace that God sees what I do, that is so good for me. Because I believe that there's such a bigger story going on. And if you and I could grasp God's heart for the world, we could be a part of that exact same story. So my encouragement for us is that we would be people that would see God's heart, that God sees the suffering and the injustice of his people, of this world, that we see God's heart for your family, for your place of business, for your uh, neighborhood, for your city, for our county, for our nation, for our world, that we would see that and we would be a part of it. Not that we would just applaud, good job, God, well done. No, but that we would actually be like, God, thank you for using us. That God chose Moses to say, lead these people. Go back to Pharaoh and lead them out. God is looking at you and saying, lead these people. Lead them out of the captivity and oppression that they are currently living in. And they don't even realize it. When I was talking to Caleb earlier this week, he was saying to me, what I love about the Huntington Beach community is that throughout the past two or three years, there has been a refinement happening here to produce the strongest core group of people he could ever imagine in Huntington Beach at this church. That all of the change and the transition that you guys have been through has produced this unbelievable crew of people who is so passionate about God and wants to participate in what God is doing in this community. This is an unbelievable picture of God's heart for the world that you are intimately a part of. And so for those of us that don't believe in God, for those of us that are just here and like, I don't get any of this, I don't want to believe in it, my hope would be for you that you would hear that God hears your cries, that God sees your pain, God sees your suffering. For those of us that are going through a divorce, maybe have been divorced, that God sees your pain and hears your cries. For those of us that have lost people recently in our lives, that God sees your pain and hears your suffering. For those of us that on our neighborhood are going through difficult times, you know that person down the street that's going through a very painful circumstance, that God sees their pain and hears their cries. And for those that live in in Huntington Beach that are lost and confused and they don't even know it, that God sees their pain and God hears their cries. And here's what's beautiful. God is not okay with it. God is not passive. God is not looking on saying, well, you deserve this. He is saying, I am going to send a fire to rescue you. And he is sending you, the light of the world, into Huntington Beach to rescue his people. You are the light of the world. When others see you, they will see how much God loves them. I really believe that we are on the forefront of a spiritual renewal in in Orange County, in Huntington Beach, I really believe that God is doing something new. God is doing something so fresh, and you and I are a part of it. My hope for you is that you would participate, that you would be in in this season, that you would embrace this conversation with God, and you would have a moment with the Holy Spirit where you say, God, what are we going to do next? I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a moment. We're going to have just an opportunity to sing one or two more songs, but before we get there, I would like for you to spend a few moments asking God or saying to God, I need hope in this place. Where is it that you hope God sees 
your pain or the pain of others? Where is it that you hope God hears your cries? Who is it that is crying out to God and they might not even realize it? Who is it that desperately needs to understand that God sees and hears his people? while you guys are spending time reflecting with God. I want you just to sit and think about what it is that he is wanting to say to you. And we're going to sing this song over you. So you just take some time and spend it with God and don't feel pressured by the outside forces around you. Just sit with him.